So hi, welcome to the first video for the new Yosis HQ YouTube channel. And today I'm really happy to be joined by somebody I'm sure you all know, uh, Olaf. So Olaf, um, could you just um, tell us how you want to, how we should pronounce your name? Because I know that's been confusing in the past. Well, I, I don't have a particular way I want it to be pronounced, uh, but I pronounced myself as Olaf. Olaf, okay. And your preferred pronouns? Uh, I would go with he, him, but I'm fine with they, them okay. as well. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm really uh, happy to have you here on, on our first um, interview with Yosis HQ. Uh, you're a real fundamental figure in the open source hardware and EDA tool circles. Um, and these are the kind of people that I'm interested to have on this um, interview segment. So um, maybe we can get started with um, Fossey. For people that haven't heard about Fossey, how would you um, how would you sum it up? So um, when when I started out with Open Source Silicon in, in 2010, uh, there was a small hobbyist movement. Uh, we had the main site, which was OpenCourse.org, uh, was owned by a company. We realized that. We had a community that was very highly dependent on, on, uh, on a single company for, for the infrastructure and for, for everything, uh, like mailing lists and things like that. So we realized we needed a vendor independent body that could govern uh, open source silicon because we saw it was growing. We didn't know how fast we grow at that point, but we, we saw that it was growing. So we uh, sat down and created FOSSI Foundation, the Free and Open Source Silicon Foundation. Uh, and we had a few high-arching goals. We wanted to have provide a place where people could collaborate. Uh, and that, that would be our conferences and, and libricourse.org. Uh, we wanted to promote and assist open source silicon in the industry, in academia, for hobbyists alike. Um, and, and we wanted to have the technical underpinnings as well. So, so we have, for example, worked a lot of uh, making sure there are licenses, open source licenses that are applicable and, and usable for open source silicon. So these will be the main things with FOSS Foundation, uh, center of gravity. And um, is Orconf a part of FOSSI? Yes. Uh, so Orconf was originally the Open Risk Conference. It was started by Julius Baxter and, and me uh, before FOSS Foundation was uh, formed. But it was very natural to move this as into FOSS Foundation as a FOSS Foundation project. Uh, so for Orconf is is. Open Risk Conference originally, it has very little open risk content now, and it's, it's the premier place for open source EDA development, uh, IP course, and everything around open source silicon. Uh, it is moving around Europe each year, not last year, but we hope to resume that. Uh, it's free of charge, and, and the intent is to have a, a low threshold to, to coming in to, to open source silicon. So wherever you live, at some point, we hope that we can have an or come near you so that you, you can, so that everyone can attend at least once. Uh, and we also started up our sister conference, Latchup, uh, in the US, because we have a lot of people in the US who can't afford to come to uh, Europe. Uh, so we hope to resume that as well. It is nice to have a hardware conference in Europe, though, I've got to say, as somebody that is normally on the other end of that equation, having to go to the States for the conferences. Yeah, I, I, the, there's, a, there's a higher need for that in, in Europe. I, I definitely agree to that. I mean, at some point, we hope that we can go into Africa, we can hope go into Asia. But, but we are... We're doing this totally on, on a voluntary basis, so it's it's a matter of resources, how much time and money we can spend our, from our own pockets. And you didn't fancy a virtual one this year? 
No, um, so one reason is that we have always had these conferences been about the meetings. Uh, we try to downplay the actual uh, presentations and, and trying to make sure that people, people are presenting, but uh, more for the purpose of finding new collaborators and, and finding uh, ways to collaborate with other people. Uh, and we think that the whole conference where people meet each other is, is, is the main thing there. So instead, we did something very different. We launched uh, a series of, of uh, seminars with high-profile speakers, um, one each month, uh, called the Dial-Up, instead of the Latch-Up. Um, so, so that's what we did instead. Okay. The Fossi so, yeah, actually, I, I knew about Fossey Dial-Up, but I didn't realize it, would, it had come out of that. So um, that's good. Um, Talking of open source silicon, because all all of those um, dial-ups were um, kind of well, the first one from Tim Ansell was about the um, announcement announcement of the open open PDK from Skywater, and then we had subsequent ones from Efabless uh, with Mohammed, and then an, an open lane one again with another Mohammed, um, and then we had memory compiler with Matthew and. Um, who else? We had uh, Tim Edwards talked about DRC with Magic, I'm sure. And then there was another one about standard cells, I think. But that was that was really the beginning of a a bit of a revolution, I think. It definitely was. So this, this project is is a, it's a great project. Uh, we've been waiting for this uh, for a long time. There have been bits and pieces lying around, but just this whole end-to-end -end flow, uh, it, it's amazing. And I think... One thing that Mohammed Kasim said that 75% of the participants in the first shuttle were software engineers, or they defined themselves as software engineers. And these are people who would never have done an ASIC if it wasn't for this. And now we suddenly mm -hmm. have at least 30 new people who have taped out an ASIC. And I think that that is amazing. This is just the beginning of something. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't count myself as a software engineer, I'm more of a hardware, but I didn't think that I would ever get the opportunity to tape out an ASIC either. So I was really excited to be involved in that. Yeah, right. I, I, yeah, I, totally. And I, I would have done it myself if I had the time. I, I hope to catch yeah. one of the coming shuttles. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Let's move on to LibreCores, given that we're talking about, I mean, one of the things about the, so the open PDK is very exciting because that opens the doors to sharing all the way down to the GDS. But um, part of the, um, the free Google shuttle, the sponsored shuttle, which is uh, very exciting from my point of view in terms of actually getting silicon in my hand is that the the designs have to be open source as well and that kind of fits in with um libre to some extent doesn't it yes uh, very much so uh so right now we we're not fully there yet the the idea is is to have have um, a community hub with libre where you can share designs share ideas um share knowledge uh we did not want to go down the route of, of open course so it's it, LibreCore is not, not a clone of OpenCourse. We, we don't do hosting. Uh, we try to be more of a... Since much of the development is on different GitLab servers, on, on GitHub and other places, we try to be more like a curated list of, of uh, IP course and, and tools uh, where you can more easily find these things. Uh, and then we are looking towards uh, also Fusoc integration. So it would be more like like a PyPy if you're, if you're a Python programmer or a, yeah. a Rust has something similar. It's so. like a package installer, isn't it, for Python? Yeah, exactly. So so uh, so people, the idea is that people should be able to upload their 
and registered the course on LibreCourse uh, with a pointer to their repository. Uh, and Fusoc, the package manager, would uh, then be able to find these things just uh, so you can quickly share uh, quickly share the designs with other people in a way that is not yet possible. Okay, so what would you say the biggest difference between LibreCourse and um, what was the other one you mentioned? OpenCourse. OpenCourse. Open so OpenCourse was extremely important. It was the it was created in, in 1999, which we say is the year zero of open source silicon. Uh, it was where OpenRisk was started and, and a lot of, of IP course, but it wasn't a good tool for collaboration. All these IP courses has very much lived in isolation. Uh, any project that kind of reused them, uh, they used it in a way where, where source code was just copied into a larger repository and then you had uh, to form, form a bigger design. And, and this was the problem that I saw quite early on, and uh, which is big motivation why I started Fusoc to make it easier to re reuse IP cores. Uh, but we also, and, and Fusoc already supports reusing IP cores from, from open cores, from GitHub, from other places. Um, but I think the next step would be also to empower users to more easily share uh, designs. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the um, projects that you put your effort into is about um, community building as well as the technology. Can you say a couple of words about that? Yeah, so I think there are so many great projects and I, I always said that I think I'm a pretty good programmer because I don't really like to program all that much. Uh, so I try to try to use what, what's available. Uh, and the, the problem today isn't that we have, we lack uh, good uh, IP cores or, or technologies. It's that we lack the means to put them together and make them accessible, commoditize them, uh, all those things. And uh, so this is this is very much what some of my projects are about. Like I have Accuser, like for example, package manager, uh, tries to make it easy to to, to build uh, designs from other people's course. Uh, Idealize is the way to um, abstract away the, the EDA tools themselves. So you can ease more easily switch between tools. Uh, so you don't necessarily are locked into a tool. Uh, I have a small project called Led to Believe which is just about uh, making making a, a blinky on, on every FPGA board in the world. Uh, so this is just a fun exercise to, to, for people to, to get started and do something where they can actually see something happens and they can contribute. Uh, I think that's important things like that as well. Gosis HQ, open source EDA tools and related software development. Um, so talking of um, one specific IP core in particular, um, on, on Twitter I've been led to believe that um, you've won a few awards in, in your history, and one of them is for um, something called Serve. Oh, right, yeah, uh, that's a familiar name. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, Serve is the, is the world's smallest RISC-V processor. Uh, and it won an award. So there was a, there was a competition like a, a year or two ago, wasn't there, for new Risk Five cores? And yeah, so so the you got you got the you won the creativity prize on that or something. I recall. Right. So so the history around that is that at Orconf in two thousand eighteen, uh, there was an announcement made uh, that there would be a Risk Five soft CPU contest uh, where people had to create the smallest or fastest Risk Five core under some criteria, it should run a separate operating system. It had some, some constraints. Uh, and there were two months, I think, uh, until the deadline. 
and I sat there in the audience thinking, oh, this sounds like a lot of fun, but I have absolutely no time to start another project. Um, so I just went home. So a month after Orconf, I was doing the dishes and I started thinking about, I wonder if you could do a bit serial core. I didn't know that was a thing really, but I kind of figured maybe you can do just one bit at a time. So I started scribbling down some stuff on paper. Uh, and then so just to interrupt there, so normally um, with a CPU, you're processing like a word at a time and a word is made like 32 or 64 bits or whatever. Yes. And a bit serial core is... You, may, you might still have like a 32-bit register, but you only work on one bit at a time. Is that correct? That is correct. So you, you, you trade area for, for, uh, for time. So you can, in many cases, you, instead of having 32 gates of, of some kind, you have one gate and you reuse it 32 times. So it's 32 okay. times lower, but, but uh, uses 32, 32 times smaller. Yes, exactly. So, uh, so I started scribbling down some notes on paper and then thought, yeah, I should just open the computer and, and run the simulation, see how that would be. Uh, and then I kind of just began. Uh, so over evenings and, and weekends uh, for a month, uh, I, I started working on, on this CPU and it was never meant to be a CPU, but it became a CPU eventually. So about three hours before the deadline, uh, I, I actually, finished the last thing and, and submitted it and I kind of assumed it wouldn't get anywhere until I was notified that uh, <laughs> I had won the creativity award at the <laughs> summit. I wasn't there, I just, so people's, people started uh, telling me about it. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And that's um, uh, kind of led on to um, a couple of other things. So you've kind of been playing um, lookup table golf, LUT golf, and trying to uh, shave lookup tables off your, what in the FPGA implementation of Surf. But you've also got something called Core Score now. Yeah, so it, it, it's kind of, I had the world's smallest CPU. Uh, it, it, well, I should also say that when I won the Creativity Award, it, it wasn't that small. Uh, so I, I started really working on, on making smaller after that. Um, but, but then I think started thinking, what, what could I do with this thing? Um, so first I, I actually started doing a heterogeneous sensor aggregation platform. Very fancy word for, for um, the, the idea was that, that you should, if you have a lot of sensors connected to FPGA, uh, you should be able to communicate with all the sensors using a combination of software and hardware. So you can like do stuff like, um, high-level sensor communication in, in software, but maybe do some FFT or do some uh, post-processing and custom protocol implementation in, in hardware. Uh, and since it was so small, you could attach one CPU to each of these sensors and have very good real-time capabilities. Uh, the problem then was that I quickly ran out of sensors. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, didn't have, I didn't have so much to test this with. So I had like two sensors and then I had room for 30 cores in, in one FPGA. So then I started thinking is that, oh, fuck it, I just see how many I can fit into the FPGA uh, and just having them print out the message each. Uh, and then I created something called ServeMark. Uh, and three minutes later, I thought that CoreScore was a better name, edit release a better name. Um, and then we've got a character too now called Corey. Yes. So Corey is, is actually, Corey, Corey is, is older. Uh, Corey was, uh, was done before that. So Corey is, uh, Corey is the, the Fusok mascot, really. Okay. Um, but she, she makes an appearance in, in Core Score. Uh, so that's probably where people know her from now. 
And what's the um, what's the largest number of um, what who's on the high table? Can you remember? Yeah, I'll I'll load up a graphic. Uh, I do know that the first place is five thousand and eighty-seven uh, serve cores on on a high-end uh, Silinx device, uh, followed by three thousand forty cores on another uh, Silinx device, and that the second one is a bit fun because that is is a HAPS, which is like a, this big synopsis. Uh, uh, ASIC simulation platform that, that the guy uh, bought secondhand, uh, much cheaper than they are uh, new, and and figure out how they worked and, and put all these cores in it. So it's for course per dollar. It's it's really <laughs> it's good bang for the bucks. Uh, Do you have that as a column in core score course per dollar? I, I have been thinking about it, but it, it's too yeah. too much hassle keeping it up. Uh, also, we yeah. have have one guy who had. Um, had this Cisco modem he bought for like eight dollars or something on, on on eBay and could fit like 70 cores into that uh, so they're all, all sorts and I think it, it does serve two very real purposes it's uh, it, it's a way to get a better understanding of how big your FPGAs are because when people talk about LUTs they can be different LUT sizes and it it's, can be very hard to, to know especially coming into the field, how, how large your FPGA is and what you can do with it. But just having one number that tells you that this one is 10 times bigger than the other one, it probably helps a bit. And also, it's a lot of fun. I think people mm -hmm. are having fun trying to, to push as many courses as possible. I'd, I'd say most of the um, in-jokes on Twitter are based on uh, serve or core score. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, one person wants to know if you're actually 100 Risk five cores in a trench coat. <laughs> I, I, I won't go into detail on that. <laughs> um, and someone else wants to know if you took all your FPGA dev boards and you filled them all with serve cores, how many would you have all together? <laughs> you probably don't know that off by <laughs> No, I don't know. I, I, actually, I don't own that many big boards, but I'm trying. So uh, there has been this prediction that there will be 62 point five billion risk five cores in, in 2025s. I'm just trying to do my part. Okay, yeah, that's good. We all need to play our part. Um, just while I'm on Twitter, um, I think this is an, uh, maybe an in-joke that I'm not aware of, but uh, someone's asking, when will documentation week be? <laughs> yeah, so uh, at some point I, 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 I tried to, I, I, have, I have been apologizing a lot for documentation, lack of documentation, and I, Okay, right. I, I think that I've said also that if, if I would have spent as much time writing documentation as I've done apologizing for the lack of documentation, the documentation would be really, really good by now. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm sorry about that and I need to fix it. But one thing that happened this year was uh, for FUSOC. So uh, fellow Fossil Foundation director, uh, Philip Wagner, uh, did a huge job in, in, in making the FUSOC documentations very good. Uh, so I'm super happy about that. And I, for serve, I actually tried also to make some documentation. I, I tried to like do block diagrams of of where I write down each and every. Yeah, they were really good actually. The, the quality of those diagrams was great. But I um I really felt your pain a little while later when you said you shouldn't have made the documentation because now <laughs> it takes three times longer to update your documentation every time you make an improvement to the core. Yeah, so I need to stop making improvements to the core now. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's one way to call the end of that game. So, um, um, 
Uh, here's a really um, general, um, broad question, but I think you're really well placed to answer it. Um, how do you think open source is shaping the EDA world? And like, what are your predictions for the kind of coming years? You know, we've got we've got these open source RTL to GDS uh, tool now in OpenLane. Uh, we've got um, lots and lots of um, open source ASICs coming off the end of this um, shuttle. Um, we've got uh, more and more people doing open source EDA tools. Risk five, as you say, is an open ISA. What do you think is going to happen in the future, and how is open source important to this? So I, yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. So hopefully, I can I can answer <laughs> some of that with with some confidence. So when it comes to open source EDA tools, it, it's they they will be playing a bigger part. Uh, the question is how. And I think we need to look at how they differ from the proprietary tooling. And two things to stand out is, is cost and innovation. Uh, so the cost, uh, these open source EDA tools uh, have a lower uh, cost in two ways. Uh, they have a lower upfront cost, a purchase cost, purchasing cost. In terms of like not having to pay license fees or whatever? Yeah. Uh, not all of them, uh, but but uh, and also I mean the many of the FPGA vendors, for example, provide some kind of no cost version, uh, a limited no cost version, uh, and for many companies this really isn't the problem. For some of this, for some it isn't. But then we have the cost of usage, and I think that is a cost that's not as much talked about. It's the cost that when you need to. There are, there are two aspects to this. One is uh, the cost of, of just having to deal with licenses, like uh, you you wasting engineering time for people who can't use the tools because licenses are written down or they're waiting for someone else to be done. Uh, and all these small hiccups. Uh, I think engineering time is, is, is probably pretty expensive. <laughs> I think it can easily come up to the levels of, of the actual tool costs uh, just in, in lost engineering time. And then another thing, like I have been working for, I, I started working uh, in the industry for, for what at the time was the largest FPGA buyer in the world. When we had problems, they sent down to FAEs uh, for, for, to help us out directly. And they, they in turn called up their internal people and provide us with internal bills and things like that and fix the problem. This is not, what it is like in, in most companies. Most companies, mm. you are uh, sent to some support and it can take weeks and months. And this is lost time. This is lost money. It costs so much. Um, and it, in many cases, it's it's very simple problems in the EDA tools, but, but as you don't have any means to fix them yourself, you just get stuck. And as... Opposite to this, I was working with the um, the Quick Logic. So Quick Logic has released the world's first uh, open source vendor uh, approved tool chain, FPGA tool chain. And I was I had a problem with with that. Uh, it was uh, was a parameter that was badly tuned, so I uh, needed to. So, so the the sign didn't instantiate in the way that I was expecting it to do. I started chatting with the people and in 15 minutes they had look give me, me the file which I should change and I, I I could fix it and I had lost like an hour half an hour mm -hmm. uh, and I could continue working 
And this is, I mean, this is in a big company, this would be a huge difference in costs. Uh, just having your engineering department not be able to work for, for weeks uh, because of bugs like this. So this is a cost that, that we're, uh, this is an area where open source tools can provide a much larger cost reduction, I think. And then it's about innovation. Uh, you, I mean, sometimes I can wake up in the middle of the night and just come up with a, with a song ID, uh, do some recording, uh, and then I can just turn on the phone and start singing into the phone uh, because I have the means to do it. Or I, mm -hmm. if, I, if, I have, uh, if I have an ID for serve, I can just uh, start up the computer and, and uh, start simulating or, or, or synthesizing anything just at home anytime I want. But if I need to have... A license if I need to be at the office if I need to uh, clear with management that I need this license I need to sit with this at this workstation this opportunity of innovation will be lost and I think uh, I think we're losing so much innovation uh, with the proprietary tools that they are people come up with an idea in the shower yeah and... exactly and then, then they, they kind of forget about it before they have a chance to to do it properly, uh, but if they have, if you give them the means to do it quickly, I think. And for me, was with, with formal verification. I did some formal verification at school, and then I started work, and I asked, "Hey, which formal verification tools are you using?" And they said, "No one is using formal verification." And since there were no open source tools or no free tools, I couldn't do formal verifications, and I kind of just lost lost the interest in, in it until. Uh, Claire presented at Orcon 2015, presented the, the symbiosis uh, uh, tools, and I was, wow. So suddenly I can do formal verification again, which I haven't been able to do. And this is also something that costs for the companies, uh, because if they want to hire people who know formal verification, uh, they, they have a much smaller pool <laughs> to choose from if, if these tools aren't available. Mm -hmm. So this is this is good for the chip industry in general. It will allow more people to go into it. It will allow more developers to test out new ideas. Another thing, uh, we have the GHDL uh, simulator, which is a VHDL simulator. Um, and quite recently, it has been used not only as a simulator, but as a front end to get VHDL support for Yosis. I don't, don't know if you've heard about Yosis. Uh, just remind me again, yeah, it's, what does it do? It, it's, it's this uh, amazing synthesis tool. <laughs> It's a company forum that I'm um, um A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed um, Anton Blanchard about um, a, um, a, a CPU call that he'd put on the um, eFabulous Google Skywater shuttle. And that was um, written in VHDL, and they were using GHDL for the simulation. Yeah, right. So, yeah, that's a perfect example of that. Because this, so yes, probably there are probably proprietary tools where you can take a VHDL description and 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 at the end get out like a export a, a very long let list or something like that. But just taking a tool and using a part of it and reusing it in another context that is very much what what open source uh, allows. Um, for my own projects, I I split out Edelice as a as a part of it was originally part of Fusor and I split it out to its own uh, library because I thought it would make sense on its own. And people are using either life now without using Fusoc. So it's, you can take bits and pieces and, and combine them in new ways. Uh, 
and all these, I think there's a lot of research going on on place and route, for example, and synthesis, and they can now base this on Yosis or an XPNR or BPR instead of having to create a tool from scratch for the research. So there's so much innovation we are unlocking with open source EDA. But I don't think that was where it will start. I think it will hmm. start uh, with, with the uh, tools that uh, bridge between the open source and the uh, proprietary EDA tools. So one project I think is going to become important is CocoDB. Uh, it's, it's a testing framework um, where you write your testing code in, in, in Python, but it uses uh, the traditional simulator flows. It can use uh, open source tools like Verilator, or it can use uh, proprietary tools like, like Cadence tools or, or uh, mentor tools. Um, and I think this is, I think it will start like this because uh, the companies will find that they can now hire Python developers instead of system Verilog developers to write the verification code. And there will probably a thousand Python developers for every <laughs> system Verilog developer. So it is a matter of economy. Uh, it doesn't also, it doesn't harm the uh, EDA tool vendors because uh, you can still use it with your old cadence or synopsis flows. Uh, and the same time, for, same thing for, for the developers who are using these things. If they are used to using a certain simulator, they can still do that. Um, but I think, uh, uh, but I think we we will see them switching over in time to to more and more open source tools. That's your um your golden prediction for the next five years. Yeah, I usually no, I'm not right. I usually wrong, but I could write. <laughs> Um, okay, so just as a, a final thing, I wanted to um, informally um, present you an award for being our best interviewee. Yes. Um, so you can add that to your list of accolades. That's perfect. And and um, thanks very much for your time and for um, coming on our, our new channel. Well, thank you for having me. I had a great time. I'm looking forward to see more. Great. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Thank <music> you.